Thank you for joining us today at Our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in seven different locations. We hope that today's message encourages and empowers you on your spiritual journey and helps you grow deeper in your relationship with God. To learn more about Our Savior's Church and how you can get involved, you can visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. been in this relationship series, and I've been covering all kinds of relationships, trying to help you steward your relationships better. And uh, I remember this quote from Pastor Jacob this week as I was preparing uh, for our message today. And here's the quote. It says, when I don't know what God is up to, all I have to do is look at what the enemy is attacking. If I don't know what God is up to, I just look at what the enemy is attacking. And you know, God's got a plan. God's got a plan, and the enemy knows it. He can't beat it, but he's going to try to muff it up in the process. And so what would you say that the enemy has been attacking in our lives and in our societies? And I'll tell you this. The first human institution that God created was a marriage. It was between one man and one woman. It began the family, and ever since, the enemy has been attacking. You all do realize that the enemy has been attacking marriages. It's a fascinating study that I wish we had some time to unpack, but I started looking fully from the beginning of creation all the way to today, and here's what I see regarding marriage. There are periods of decline, periods of resurgence, distortions that happen, and recommitments to the biblical definition of marriage. It's fascinating. You can look all the way back to the early biblical accounts of marriage, and you see that marriage is sacred. It it promoted a monogamous procreation in, in the nurturing of children within a family unit. And then what happens over time, the sinfulness of man starts to permeate our society, and we start to see these, these distortions, right? The first one being infidelity. Infidelity attacking marriage. Then divorce. The third distortion was polygamy. Even godly men like King David and King Solomon had multiple wives. Let me tell you, it didn't work out for them. It did not go good for them. Every single one of them led to problems in their family and their own spiritual compromise. Then we had the spreading of Christianity and the teaching of Jesus that brought about this resurgency in the sanctity and the priority of marriage. But the rise of the Roman Empire made things like the objectification of women and same-sex attraction. Things that were very small and very localized started to spread across the globe as the influence of the Roman Empire started to spread. It became more prevalent. Then again, in medieval Europe, the spread of Catholicism saw a resurgence in the importance of marriage as the government and the church blend together. The church and the state became united. The Protestant Reformation that came after that emphasized marital teachings of mutual consent, fidelity, spiritual equality of a husband and a wife, only to have our modern society, look at this, revert back in many ways to the Roman Empire and the failed Roman Empire where promiscuity, homosexuality, and infidelity were rampant. Isn't it crazy how we can relive some of these same cycles over and over again? You say, well, the point is this. The attacks on the institution of marriage aren't new. They've been happening since the creation of time. Not new. And you say, well, Pastor Don, 
Is there any good news in the middle of this? Yes, there is, and here's the good news. Despite all of those thousands and thousands of years of the enemy's attempt to distort, ruin, and disbar us from marriage, how many of you know marriage has lasted? There are godly relationships, godly plans, godly purposes, and things that God has in store that the enemy cannot defeat. But it's important, as we talk about marriage, that you understand this isn't a new battle. We don't wake up and go, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? The enemy's attacking marriage. He's been doing it for a long time. He does not have a new playbook. It is the same play over and over again, and we get to watch. Young people, listen to me. It's very important that you realize the temptation for you is always to think that you know better, that you're living in a world that nobody else has lived in, and the way you see things is important. Listen, Edmund Burke said this, those who don't learn history are doomed to repeat it. I would say it this way. Those that don't learn the biblical history can't possibly repeat it. So I think it's very important that we understand not just how the enemy is attacking marriage, but how godly marriage done by this book standards has upheld itself over centuries and centuries and centuries. And if you want to see strong biblical marriages in our community, you don't have to look further than right here in this book to find out what God has in store for marriages. Y'all ready? Because listen, you can't hide from this. You can't bury your head in the sand and say, oh, well, that's them. They just do, you do you, boo. That's what the enemy wants you to do. The enemy wants you to do what you think is right. Proverbs 22, 3, this is Solomon. It says this, it says, the prudent see danger and hides himself, and the simple go on and suffer for it. There are simple people suffering for you, hiding your head in the sand because you know God's truth and you're living it, but you're not speaking it. The prudent see danger, and not only do they avoid it, but they speak to that truth. I'm going to share some things with you because I'm telling you it's a subtle attack that's been creeping in, especially since the 1950s here in America. Look at this. I'm going to put it up on the screen so you can follow. This is fascinating. I want you to watch this gap. 1950s, marriage in America was largely aligned with biblical values. Marriage was highly esteemed. There was an emphasis on sanctity and the permanence of the marriage commitment. Then came the 1960s, and with it came secular humanism and the sexual revolution. It challenged biblical teachings of purity and marital fidelity. The availability of contraceptions brought about an increase in premarital sex. That led us to the 70s. What happened in the 70s? Well, that's the no-fault divorce laws. You started to see the breakdown of this marriage commitments. It changed the stability of the family unit. We had an increase in single-parent homes, which led to problems economically as more and more people had to go back into the workforce. They didn't have the same advantages, and they didn't have the same backgrounds in raising. In the 80s, societal values of individualism and personal fulfillment challenged biblical values of sacrificial love, mutual submission. It de-emphasized family. And that's when we started to see about gender equality issues. Y'all remember that back from the 80s? Men and women and the roles of each one and what's one supposed to do and one's equal over the other. It's subtly trying to erode the purpose and the necessity for marriage. All of that led us to the 90s. What happened in the 90s? Well, those economic struggles that we saw from the 80s brought about two-income households. You started to see cohabitation in single-parent households, which led to further demise of the advancement and where kids could no longer get a head start. You saw the 2000s come about. Some of you, and I'm back into our current 
current modern. Technology and digital revolution. Here's what happens. The proliferation of pornography creates unprecedented sexual dissatisfaction among households. Same-sex relationships start challenging our legal system. Blogs and social media give rise to the vocal minority and cancel culture. Y'all see the shift? And here we are finding ourselves, 2010's legalization of the same-sex relationships brings a rise to church splits over inaccurate biblical interpretation, and that resulted in an intense reaffirmation of biblical principles regarding the sanctity of marriage. It wasn't so long ago that the number one question I would get about church wasn't, is Jesus Lord, is the Bible God's word? It was, do you affirm same-sex marriage or do you not? And it's amazing to me how we can go and repeat some of the same problems that have been happening on for generation after generation after generation because we don't see it coming. And now here we are in the 2020s, and we're finding ourselves facing these questions of gender and sexuality, and we're attempting to redefine the necessity of marriage. This is not new. Y'all hearing me? I know I just gave you a fire hydrant, but I'm going to help you because here's, here's the problem. Little by little, this gap has been growing. This gap has been growing, and we get overwhelmed by the information and the onslaught of this vocal minority who has a platform now to share things that they've been trying to slip into our mindsets. And when we don't know any different, we get confused. And now, all of a sudden, instead of speaking up for biblical truth, we don't even read this book for ourselves, and we don't know the difference between what God has said and what social media has said. That's a problem. That's a problem. So how do we fill that gap? What do we need to understand about marriage biblically that will prevent the enemy from destroying it on our watch? And here's the challenge I have because I do have another service to get to this morning. <laughs> this is going to take us two weeks. It's going to take us two weeks. Today, I want to share some marriage misconceptions, things that as a result of not fully understanding history, it's caused us to misunderstand the purposes of marriage. And then next week, if I say next week, I'm going to share the practicals of how to have a marriage that will last. And this isn't going to be relevant just to those who are married. This is going to be relevant to those of you that are single that need to know what it looks like. This is going to be relevant to those of you who aren't yet married but have a plan and, and are wanting to do that. I remember growing up, my mom had this set of kitchen spoons, right? Y'all know kitchen spoons. She uses them to mix everything else. They were great for digging in the dirt. <laughs> they were. I mean, the, the other spoons, I just didn't, you know, I wasn't big enough to use a shovel, but those kitchen spoons would work great. And my mom had a cow when she found out us boys had been using those kitchen spoons to dig in the dirt. She ended up giving them to us because they were no longer any good for the kitchen after we were digging in the dirt. You think that was bad. It wasn't near as upset as she got when we built a tree fort and needed some shade because it was hot in West Texas. And Grandma's hand-sewn quilt worked perfectly <laughs> nailed into the branches. Y'all are on her side, aren't you? You're not, you're not, you're not, on, you're not on, on my side. Here, here's the point, the reason why I tell you those stories. Anytime you don't know the purpose of something, you're destined to abuse it. I didn't understand that those spoons were only for cooking and for kitchen, so I used them in what made the best sense to me, and I ended up making it no longer good for the thing it was created for. Something that was intended to last for generations after generations after generations was now ripped 
torn and soiled because I took it into an environment it was never meant to be brought into. And if you don't understand the purpose that God has for marriage, you will do something with it that it never should have been done, and it'll be no longer good for the thing it was created to do. You will bring things that are only designed for the environment of marriage out in the world, and you'll wonder why it feels torn and tattered and soiled and no longer resembles the thing that somebody wants to pass on from generation to generation. Are you hearing me? This is important to us. Here's misconception number one for those of you that are taking notes. Things that I want us to understand. Marriage isn't broken. We are. Marriage is not broken. We are. We've bought into the lie that the pursuit of our own happiness is the chief goal of life. Do you know what that's called? If we were taking a psychology class today and somebody stood up and said, anyone who believes that the chief purpose of life is to come to their own happiness is the chief goal. Do you know what they would say that is called? Hedonism. It's hedonism. Here's the mantra of hedonism. Pursue pleasure, avoid pain. Pursue pleasure, avoid pain. I want you to say that with me. Pursue pleasure, avoid pain. Here's what that means. If it feels good, run to it. And if it feels hard, run away from it. Marriage isn't broken we are. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. This was written in about 60 to 65 AD. It says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. Look at this. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of who? Lovers of God. And listen, of course, you can look at all the sociological and economic problems that we have, and you can trace them all back to a lack of opportunity that results from poverty in single-parent homes. And studies abound, and the profound impact that a two-parent home has on the advancement of youth cannot be, dis uh, cannot be disputed. But listen to this. You cannot blame the failure of marriage on marriage. You must blame the failure of marriage on the sinfulness of man. This isn't new. It isn't, oh my, what are we going to do now? No, look at me. This has been happening. We need to know what this book says so that we can move on. It was William Edward Burkhart Dubois. He was the first African-American to earn a Ph.D. from Harvard. Look what he says. He says, herein lies the tragedy of the age. Not that men are poor. All men know something of poverty. It's not that men are wicked. Who is good? It's not that men are ignorant. What is truth? Nay, but that men know so little of men. The prophet Jeremiah said, the heart is exceedingly wicked above all else. Who can know it? As a matter of fact, if I'm not certain that I've ever seen a marriage problem that wasn't the re direct result of a sin problem in somebody's life. That's where it starts, and it creeps in, and we got to be able to see it. Marriage isn't broken. We are. Y'all following me today? You tracking? Let's go to the second misconception here. Misconception number two. Marriage is a covenant for givers, not a contract for consumers. Now, you need to understand this. We live in a consumer-based, disposable society. When was the last time you heard about somebody having a viable occupation as a TV repairman? 
Why? Because what happens when your TV breaks? You just go get a new one, right? Don't like your clothes? Go get new ones, right? Don't like your car? What can you do? Go get a new one. Don't like your house? What can you do? Don't like your nose? What can you do? You go get a new one. That's just how it works today. Then it's not such a far slip then to say, well, if I don't like my spouse, go get a new one. In a contract for consumers, the priority is on the well-being of the individual, and the relationship is disposable. But in a covenant, the priority is given to the relationship, not the individual. I want to read you a statement from an economics lesson. Economics, money, business, marketplace. This statement is from that context. But I want you to look and listen to how much it mirrors some of the way many of us feel about physical relationships. Here's what it says. It says, the consumer relationship lasts only as long as the vendor meets your needs at a cost that is acceptable to you. And if another vendor can deliver better services or the same services at a better cost, you're no longer obligated to stay in relationship with the original vendor. Economics has become relationship. Relationship no longer is the priority. It's the individual. Pursue happiness. Avoid hardship. Avoid difficulty. And my marriage has become hard, so I'm going to go get a new one because everything else in my life is disposable. Do you see the misconception that has creeped in to our household? We don't see it sneaking in. A consumer focuses on what one can get, but a covenant focuses on what one can give. Look what Scripture says. Listen to this marriage language that is in Scripture. This is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's not get language. That's give language. Look at Ephesians 5.22. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. How many of you know that takes sacrifice and giving of oneself? The Bible teaches us that the essence of marriage is a sacrificial commitment. Sacrificial commitment. And next week, I'm going to teach you how you can give sacrificially to something bigger than yourself and never go without Society can't teach you how to do that. Society will tell you that if you give all of yourself to this, there'll be nothing left for you. You better get yours first. And I'm going to show you God's way of doing things is I give myself wholly to him and then wholly to somebody else. And then he sees and they see that I never do without. Society wants you to ask this question. How will this benefit me? It's reduced all of marriage to this contract. It's a, it's a license. It's a checkbox on your tax return that you get to check if it makes sense to you, if it economically is beneficial to you. And it's costing us marriages, y'all. I had a young couple come this last year, and they had been living together. They had blended two broken, failed marriages with kids into one household. And God saved them, brought them to church, miraculously changed their life from the inside out. And I'll never forget the day they came up to me after service and they said, Pastor, and their head was bent down. They said, Pastor, we, we're living together and we know it's not right, but, but we want to make it right. I said, well, let's do it. I'll help you. What do we, let's, let's go. Started learning about their situation. You know what their number one objection, objection to getting married actually was? It had nothing to do with knowing what was right or wrong. 
It had nothing to do with what was best for the kids or what wasn't. Their number one objection at the time was financial. They realized that if we get married, this is going to mess with our taxes in such a way. He said, Pastor, I rely on about a $16,000 tax return every single year for our household. And I'm struggling financially because I want to obey God. But $16,000 is a lot of money, Pastor. What should I do? And we were talking and praying. I told him, I said, I don't know about you. You're going to have to come to this conclusion on your own. But I can believe God for $16,000. It might just be that there are part of your life that is outside of God's blessing, that you're not seeing all the blessings because of that. Wouldn't you know, the weak Less than seven days from when they got married, he gets a $7 an hour raise at work. Let me do the math for you. Base salary, almost $15,000 increase in one week time. You added that overtime and bonus opportunities, and they're better off financially married than they ever were single. He told me, he said, it was definitely a work from God to let me know to keep my trust in him. And can I tell you, y'all, I am seeing more and more couples in our spiritual family walk up, catch me after service. Pastor, we need to get married. We need to, we've been playing marriage, but we're not, we're not married. Listen, six or seven marriages within the last several weeks all like that. It's a revival that's happening in this place. So guess what I'm going to keep doing? I'm going to keep talking about it. I'm going to keep bringing it. I'm going to keep telling you that if you're living together in a relationship, if you're cohabitating, if you're having sex, that is sin. And God is not in that. But God has brought you to a place with people that love you. And look at my face. I want to help you. I want to help you navigate financially. I want to help you navigate with your, with your friends and with your family, with the kids that are in the homes. I want to help you walk and live in the kind of purity that God has for you. And I'll tell you this the same way I've told every single one of those couples. I have watched shame melt away at the altar of obedience. So catch me after service. Your pastor loves you. He wants to help you. Misconception number three, you ready? You can't cut your losses. You can't cut your losses. Do you even know where that phrase comes from, cut your losses? Every business has a profit and a loss statement, and here's basically how it works. If the business brings in more money than it has to spend doing business, that results in a profit. And if the business loses or has to pay out more money to do business than it brings in, that's called a loss. And this piece of paper tells you the dollars coming in and the dollars going out, whether there is a profit or a loss. And cutting your losses is this idea that because what you're in is failing, it's better to cut it or to quit or to stop because to invest anything more is a waste of effort and will only incur more loss. You'll hear people in business or even at the casino say, you got to cut your losses. you got more into this than is worth putting into it. And in our capitalist society, we've become accustomed to closing businesses that fail and just reopening them under a new name, doing the same thing. How many of you know businesses that will do that? 
They get in there and they don't do it the right way or things happen and, and they have to close it. It's not making money. There's no profit there. There's a loss. So they just shut the doors. And the next week, there's another Mexican food restaurant under new management. <laughs> if you have a Mexican food restaurant, I love Mexican food. But come on now. And we go and do the same thing with a new name, hoping that it's going to be different. And we've started to do that with our marriages and with our relationships. This got hard. It couldn't work. No matter what I put in, it seemed like nothing good was coming out of it. I may wonder if I can dispose of this relationship and go get a different one, get a new name, and try to do the same thing over and over again. I'm telling you, in marriage, you can't cut your losses. My grandmother did that with several businesses and seven marriages. Yes, I said seven. None of them succeeded. How many of you know if, if she can't stay married to Peter and she can't marry to Sam and she can't stay married to Bill and she can't stay married to Tom, she can't stay married. At some point, you have to realize you can't just cut this thing off and expect to go, we got to go back. The problem is with us. It's not with marriage. Scripture's clear when it comes to marriage. Marriage is intended for life. Look at Ecclesiastes 9.9. Enjoy life with your beloved wife during all the days of your fleeting life that God has given you on this earth. Proverbs 5.18. May your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife you married in your youth. Matthew 19.4-6. This is Jesus speaking. These words are in red in your Bible. It says, haven't you read he replied that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So there are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, what does it say? Let no one separate. Separating flesh is always painful. Separating flesh is always painful. Now look at me. It was sin that introduced abuse and adultery into relationships. It is not God's best. It is not God's plan. It is not condoned. And it is no way going to be recommended or, or, or affirmed here in this house. If you find yourself in one of those relationships, look at me. I want you to come talk to me. I want to help you. You do not have to stay in that environment. It was not marriage that brought that about. It was sinfulness and sin that brought that into a relationship. I want to teach you how to overcome that in your life. Every person in here that has walked through a divorce will tell you, you can't cut your losses. The pain, the hurt, the difficulties, the mess will always be more than you think. And as a child, a product of a divorced home, can I just tell you, there are always unexpected losses that a failed marriage will give up, thinking that it can just somehow cut the losses. I'm sure you've all seen the statistic, right? 50% of all marriages end in divorce. How many of you have seen that? You've seen that statistic. I bet you I've got a statistic you haven't seen, and it's this. 66%, that's two-thirds of unhappy marriages, will become happy within five years if people stayed married and do not get divorced. That's two-thirds. Society wants you to think that if it's good for you and happy and feels good, you run to it. If it's hard, that you can run from it. But I'm here to tell you the chances are greater if you stick in it and grow and work on it, let's work on that sin issue that's prevalent, not dispose 
of this relationship. Y'all with me today? Stretch your toes out. I know I've been walking all over them today. Stretch your toes out a little bit. This room has several stories of failed marriages or marriages that were struggling to the point of failure, but they believed God. And when they committed together to say, divorce is not an option, I have personally watched God bring about that type of commitment where a man and a woman says, I don't know how this is going to work, but God, you designed this. It is your plan. We're going to start doing it your way. And it's amazing what kind of transition can take place in relationships. Marriage isn't broken. We are. Marriage is a covenant, not a contract. You can't cut your losses. And here's misconception number four. Marriage isn't outdated. It's future-focused. It's not outdated. It's future-focused. What do you mean? According to the Bible, marriage is a picture of the present that holds a promise for your future. You ever wondered where we came up with this imagery regarding weddings? Think about a wedding. What do you see? There's a bride standing up front in this beautiful dress. And she's standing there with her groom and surrounded by the bridal party. And everybody's there watching to celebrate. Where does all that come from? Who, who decided that that's what weddings need to look like? Can I tell you where that imagery comes from? It comes from Scripture. It comes from the end of times. It comes from the end of days where we see this picture 2 Corinthians 11.2, this is what the Apostle Paul said. He says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. He's talking to the church. I promised you to one husband to Christ so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 2, this is Apostle John. He's been given a vision of what the end days looks like. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Can I tell you something? He's coming for his bride. He's coming for his bride. But look at me. It's not going to look like what you think it looks like. It's not going to look like that at all. The bridal party, it's not going to be your siblings and your, and your best friends, which, by the way, those of you that are planning weddings, they can't afford that dress and that outfit anyway. And you're only inviting them to stand in your party because they invited you to stand in your party. And it's just weird how we get this imagery figured out. It won't be them. It's going to be the entire host of heaven that's standing with you. And listen, it won't start with, here comes the bride. Do you know what it's going to start with? Here comes the groom, and it's going to be a trumpet shout and shouts of victory that are coming. He is coming. Listen, you won't walk down the aisle. He's going to come riding in on a white horse. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we're going to be raised up to go and join him. It's not going to be a moment of serenity and sweet tears and oh this is great. We're going to be shouting. We're going to be singing. There's going to be a trumpet shout. And come on, let's go. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Revelation 19, 6 through 8. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. 
Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself, look at this, with fine linen, bright and pure. She's to be pure and spotless for the coming of her groom. Where do you think we get this idea that the bride's got to stand in this beautiful, white, spotless, pure, pristine dress? comes from scripture it's not about a dress it's about us we're the bride marriage isn't outdated it's a present reality of a future promise we're the bride of Christ and he's given us the ability to be clothed in purity and he is coming for us how many of you want him to come right now come on Jesus come on I remember Pastor Jacob saying years ago when he was engaged to be married, he's like, Jesus, this is the only time in my life where I'm okay if you wait just a little bit longer. <laughs> if you're engaged to be married, I'll pray with you. But everybody else, I want him to come right now. And on that day, you're not going to stand before a pastor. You're going to be standing before the living God. And he's not going to ask who takes this bride to be. He's going to ask one question. You ready to know what it is? The one question. One question, final exam. Did you receive my son? Did you receive my son? Jesus talks about this day in several ways throughout all the scripture and the recorded accounts that we have of his teaching. They all summarize it this way. That day is coming, but you might miss it. That day's coming, but you might miss it. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells a parable about 10 virgins, and they're waiting for the groom to come. And he says they all have lamps. All of them have lamps, but only some of them have extra oil. It's, it's almost as if they knew it might take a while for him to come, and they were prepared. And sure enough, when they least expected it, late at night, the groom comes, and all their oil has burned out, and the lamps no longer work. And those that had oil were ready. Only those that were prepared were able to join him. In Matthew 22, he tells a similar parable. This time it's involving a king who planned a wedding and he sent his servants out to invite the guests. And the guests didn't come. So he sent out the servants again to invite the guests and they beat them and they made fun of them and they ridiculed them and they didn't come at all. He said, fine, I'll open it up to everybody. Everybody come, everybody come. And he shows up to the wedding feast, and it's packed full of everybody that came. And he saw one person, and this person wasn't dressed in wedding clothes. It's almost as if he didn't think it was important enough to change. He didn't take it serious enough. He just said, well, everybody else is going. I'm just going to go along with them. He didn't just kick him out of the feast. The Bible says he bound him, and he sent him to a place of darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here's the promise. Heaven and hell are real places and people really do go there. And one day when the groom returns, there will be a wedding. And my question to you as your pastor that loves you very, very, very much, will you be ready? Will you be ready and will you take it serious enough to change? I want to invite you to bow your head and close your eyes. 
I want you to think about everything that God has been doing for you and been doing in your life up to this point. He's brought you here for a reason, and I believe he's speaking to you. I want you to listen to my voice and listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit that's got your attention. God paid the price of your admission to this wedding feast, and he did so by sending his son Jesus to die for you. His blood removes your stains, past, present, and future, and he's prepared a place for you. And more importantly than that, he wants you to join him. Pastor Don, how do, I, how do I respond? How do I receive Jesus to be my Lord and Savior? I would tell you it's as simple as A, B, C. A, you have to admit that you're a sinner, that your sin has separated you from a righteous and a loving God, that it's of your own choices and your own will that you have left him. He has not left you. His plan was perfect. Your life was sinful. If you're here for the first time today and you say, Pastor Don, I can see how my choices have separated me from God. I'm a sinner, and I admit it. And I would tell you the next thing is B. B stands for belief. The Holy Spirit does this work in your life. Maybe you're here for the first time and you say, I see it. God sent his son Jesus. Yes, for all of us, but especially for me. Especially for me, for my brokenness. He paid the price that I would have had to pay. He lived a life that I couldn't live and died a death so that I didn't have to. I believe that he is the son of God. And if you can admit, if you can believe, I would tell you the only thing left is the letter C, and that's confess. What am I confessing? You're confessing him as Lord and Savior. Listen, when your life is in a mess, Savior is the easy part. God help me, I can't, I can't do anything more. It's the Lordship that makes the difference. It says, Jesus, I'm going to let you take the wheel. I'm going to let you lead. If you're here today and you say, Pastor Don, I admit that I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And I confess him as Lord and Savior over my life. And I want to ask you to do this one thing. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to ask you to stand up or come forward. Nobody's looking around. Every head is bowed. But I want to know who I'm praying with today. I want to know who God is speaking to. I've never been born again, Pastor Don, but God is tugging at my heart. I need to receive Jesus to be born, to be, to be born again and to spend eternity in heaven. If you're there, I want to ask you to do these two things. I want you to raise your hand, and I want you to look up at me. Church, we're praying for those that are wrestling with decision. Right there where you're at, I want you to lift your hand and look up at me. Thank you, sir. I see your hand. Proud of you. Thank you. I see your hand. Yes, ma'am. I see your hand. I see your hand. All across this room. I see your hand up in the balcony. I see your hand. I'm glad you're here today. One more time, and then I'm going to pray. If you raise your hand before, you can put them down. You don't need to raise them again. Pastor Don, I need to pray to be born again. Jesus needs to be Lord of my life. One more time, and then we'll pray. Raise your hand and look up at me. I don't want to miss anybody today. Fantastic. Those of you that raised your hand, thank you. I see your hands, cigars. Those of you that raised your hand and everybody else, in the room today. I want us to pray this prayer out loud. It's not the prayer that saves you. The Holy Spirit has saved you. This prayer acknowledges what God has been doing 
in your heart. Say this with me. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe that you're the son of God. And I believe that on the cross, you took my sin, my shame, and my guilt, and you died for me. And I believe you rose from the dead to give me a place in heaven, a purpose on earth, and a relationship with your father. Today, Lord Jesus, I turn from my sin to follow you with all my heart, no matter what it costs me. And I declare that God is my father. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. The Holy Spirit is my helper. And heaven is now my home. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Church, let's celebrate with those who are born again today.